0: Thank you, Joshua. Let's let's pray before we open up the book of Exodus together. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning and with heart, expectant hearts longing to hear from you, we ask God that you would give us insight into your word and 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 show us how your word speaks to us today. We see you as the God who redeems, the God who calls us out of bondage and slavery and into fellowship with you. And I pray, God, that the, the, the story of Exodus would resonate with us as we consider how, how our story collides with what your word teaches. God, I, I, just, I thank you for the chance to come and worship you this morning, to study your word together and to fellowship with your people. We ask for your blessing on, on our time together and for your spirit to be at work in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you might have gathered, uh, we are going to begin looking at the book of Exodus together. I do want to invite you to turn there, although this, as we get ready to to jump into it this week, we'll be... uh, Hopping around a little bit to a few different passages before we really settle into the the text of Exodus next week, uh, and and we'll 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 be kind of taking a, a bird's eye view. I don't, I'm not sure exactly how long it'll take us to walk through, but we we won't do a, a verse by verse study. We'll be here in a, a, for a few years if we do that, so it'll be a little bit more of a an overview of the book. But we want to see uh, I- exactly what we saw in that video clip. How how. Our story is intertwined with what, what God is doing here in the book of Exodus. This is the, uh, one of the, if not the, most important Old Testament books. It's so frequently referred to and alluded to in the New Testament. And, and the picture of what happens here in this book uh, corresponds to what takes place through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. In fact in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 the apostle Paul refers back to the story of Moses and the Exodus and he says he says this these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction the Exodus is both an event and a book it's filled with exciting stories those of you who are familiar with the book or maybe have seen some of the movies depicting uh, the book you, you know that there's there's some amazing things that take place there's there's this prince that is saved and, and rescued and brought into the the Pharaoh's court there's uh, there's a burning bush that God speaks from that there's this there's the plagues and uh, miracles that take place there's this spreading of the red sea and 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 God's people cross through on dry ground and and over and over again through the book we see these miraculous events and the powerful hand of God at work and at play even as we get into the other the latter part of the book and some of it it gets bogged can you feel bogged down in details as you get into the description of the tabernacle and the utensils and some of the laws A- and we're going to see that all of that had purpose in communicating God's relationship with his people and, and how he, and, and really and pointing us forward to the coming Messiah. So as we have a chance to walk through, we're going to see that Exodus is not just history, but it's a theological history. It, it, they're not just stories, but it's, it's the story. It's a snapshot of God coming, meeting his people in bondage and rescuing them and delivering them into the promised land. We're going to see as we go throughout the book, you can kind of divide it into three broad sections. The first 18 chapters are about God delivering his people from bondage. The next section, uh, chapters 19 through 24, is God's giving of the law. And then the final section of the book is God's instructions for his people to build the tabernacle. And And as I said, we're going to see how all of this applies to us today and and, and what what God is trying to communicate through this book. And so we begin in these first couple of verses, and I'll just admit already that we're going we're gonna to stall out in the first five verses and end up actually going backwards in the story just a little bit to get us caught up. But you see here that the book of Exodus sort of starts with this expectant understanding of like that the, the you and I understand the context. If you ever begin, uh, or had a conversation with somebody that that thought you knew the background to a story, and so they just jumped in the middle of it, and they're they're rattling off names and places. And they just assume that you have the context. Like if you, uh, maybe you experience this if you move to the Clare area and you're talking to someone who's lived here their whole life and they know everybody in the community and they, all their family lives here and maybe they're just jumping in with a story like you're supposed to know all these people and you're like, I don't know exactly what you're talking about. You, you began this conversation like, like I had all this background context and I really, I don't know what you're talking about. So I don't want to assume that we have all this background context because, because uh, well, tradition holds that Moses wrote the book of Exodus, and so uh, we're just going to kind of stick with that, that traditional view. You, you can read about the other perspectives if you're so inclined, but, but he, he begins here with these are the names of Israel, the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each came with his family, and then he lists off Jacob's sons. He says the total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. So already, if you're not familiar with the context, you're wondering like, okay, Israel, what or who is that? Uh, who is Jacob? Who are these, these sons here? Why are they in Egypt? Where did they come from? Why are they even important? We have all these questions that the book of Exodus assumes. In fact, the book in, in Hebrew begins... Now, do we have any, any uh, English teachers here? Any, gonna, all right, we're kind of... All right, so we can just kind of get away with this. Um, <laughs> in English, we're taught in grammar school not to begin our sentences with and. Uh, that's that's poor English. Well, he, Hebrew doesn't have a problem with that. They'll begin with the, the uh, sentence with the word and, and that's okay in Hebrew. And and so that's actually, in Hebrew, how the book of Exodus begins. It begins with the word and, or or it could be translated so. It, it's like... It's like picking up a story right in the middle of something, and that's exactly what the intention is. Exodus is just a continuation of Genesis. Well, what happened in Genesis that might be significant, that lands us, the reason, or the, that places us where we've been placed at the beginning of Exodus? Well, Genesis, as you know, starts with God creating the heavens and the earth, and he created Adam and Eve in this perfect garden place, in, in, in perfect fellowship and communion with him. And we know from Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve rebelled against God by disobeying the one command that, that he had given them, the, the, the one thou shalt not. They did it, and they ate of the fruit, and their eyes were open, Scripture says, and they were able to see all of a sudden and distinguish between good and evil, and shame came all over them, and they, they knew that they were naked, and, and all of a sudden now their relationship with God had, had, had found a barrier And God tells them that this sin now will will affect all of humanity. They they, they don't understand the fullness of the the curses that are pronounced at the end of Genesis 3. But the the glimmer of hope, the light that begins to break through in the dark clouds that have settled over humanity, is that God says, but one day, Genesis 3.15, one day... Your offspring, he says to Eve, your offspring will, will crush this serpent's head. His heel will be bruised. That is, is, he'll. the serpent will get a few shots in. But ultimately, a death blow will be dealt to the serpent. A glimmer of hope in the midst of darkness. And so the story goes on and... And their sin, we, we, we see, is it just it impacts their, their own family, their, their kids. Cain, Adam and Eve's son, killed their other son, Abel. Murder in Genesis 4. In fact, things get so bad that we read that, that God sends a flood to this earth to destroy wicked humanity and start over with just a few. In God's grace, He rescues several in the midst of His punishment. And the story goes on, and then in chapter twelve, uh, we we see the story sort of narrowed down in focus to one man and his family, a man by the name of Abram. And now I'm gonna, and I I always re- use interchangeably Abram and Abraham. Later on, God changes his name to Abraham, and, and and I always forget about what what point in the story that happens, so I usually just call him Abraham, even though he started off Abram. So if if you get confused there, it's the same guy. Sarai and his wife, Sarah, both same, same person. And, and, and this couple, we read like there's not anything particularly special about them. Just chapter 12, God says, I want you to go and leave and go to the place I'll tell you. And he begins to make a promise to Abraham. And he says that he's going to bless the world through him. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now I think sometimes we don't feel the weight of just how crazy this is. Because we're familiar with the story, we're familiar with the word of God, we're familiar with reading the stories of the scriptures of God speaking to his people, but just based on the text alone, there's no indication that Abraham knows anything about this this Yahweh, this God of the Hebrews, this God that we've been reading about in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. When he shows up to Abraham in, in chapter 12, there's no indication that he even knows who this God is. So imagine, he's, he's probably a pagan idol worshiper, and all of a sudden this God, of whom he's never heard likely, speaks to him in, in what seems to be an audible voice. He's got no context, no, no proof of identification, no back history. He doesn't have any of the scriptures to see, like, okay, this God, he, he does sometimes call his people to do different things that they're not really expecting, and so, okay, we'll just, we'll go along with it. I get to be one of those people. But it's astounding to me that he obeys. He goes, he takes his family. He's like, hey, I just heard from this God and he said to go and he's going to tell us where to go. But we're supposed to leave our family and everything and just go. (laughs) It's crazy. But he makes this promise that I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. An astounding promise. Well, the years go by and Three chapters later, we read again of God reiterating a promise. In chapter 15 of Genesis, it says, After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? I... I don't know, I, I, we can't read Abram, Abram's tone there or anything, but it just sort of seems like he's been stewing on this promise now for a few years, and God appears and is like, by the way, I haven't forgotten that. And it's sort of like abraham has been working on his reply, and he's like, I have no clue how you're going to do this. I don't have kids. How are you going to bless the world through my offspring when I don't have kids? All I've got here is Eleazar of Damascus. He's my closest relative. It's like he's the... Like the weird cousin or something. And he's like, you're seriously going to do this through Eleazar? Come on, you can do better than this, God. And so Abram continues, look, you've given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, and I, I just, I love this picture. I don't know what this looks like. We know that, I, I don't know if God came in the, in the form of, of, of an angelic being as he would, was occasionally did in the Old Testament. But you can just envision the Lord putting his arm around Abram and it's late at night and there's no lights of the city around to drown out the sky and he's just seeing this sky as far as he can see. Just stars everywhere. And he says, look at this, look at this. Can you count the stars? He says, your offspring will be that numerous. What an amazing promise. But ultimately, from the first time that God made this promise, the years go by, even after this conversation here, and and by my calculations, it's about 25 years from the time God first appeared to him. And yet it says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. What a beautiful picture of faith. He had, no, he had no track record. You and I can turn to the scriptures and see God's faithfulness. And most of us have histories. We have relatives, people sitting next to you in these chairs that, that have histories with God. And we can see his faithfulness, and we can rejoice and say, okay... I see your trustworthiness. I see your, your track record. I believe you, God. Abraham didn't have any of that, and yet he trusted God. He's an old man now, and he says, No, 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 one of your offspring. Now we know, if you know the story, you know that Abraham to tried to try to take things into his own hands and said, Well, it's not working here, so I'm going to have a child with my wife's servant. He tried to make God's Plans happen in his own strength. And that's another, that's a, that's a whole rabbit trail we could go down about that temptation that we face to say, God, you're not acting in the way that I expect you to act or that I think you should be acting right now. So let me just take control here. Let me take the wheel for a while and I'll make things happen the way that they should happen. You clearly aren't aware of my situation. You clearly aren't aware of all the life events that are going on. So let me just. Let me just help you out a little bit. (laughs) Unfortunately, Abraham, he he faced consequences for that that decision. But ultimately, God shows up again through a couple of visitors, and he tells them that by this time next year, they were going to have a son. In fact, both, at, at different points in the story, both Abraham and Rachel laugh at story. the story. I mean, a, Abraham and Sarah both, both laugh at the outrageous idea because by this point, he's 100 and she's 90. Now, we know that they lived longer back then, but there's a reason they laughed. It was just still ridiculous to think. that They had been barren their whole lives. She had been barren. She'd not been able to have kids. And, and now at 190, you're serious? And yet, Abraham had anchored his faith. It reminds us that even when we trust God, there are times when doubt creeps in. There are times when that faith gets shaken. It happens to God's people. Even the greatest of the patriarchs in Scripture have moments of doubt and uncertainty. But finally, God provides a son. Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age and they rejoice and they celebrate but Abraham still went to the grave with one kid one descendant he had this promise from God you're going to see this through your through your seed you're going to experience like the whole world is going to be blessed your descendants will be more than the stars of the sky and he had one by the time he died And yet he had trusted God. I love what Hebrews 11 reminds us. After speaking about Abraham and Sarah, it says, These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, yet they saw them from a distance. They greeted them, and they confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. I love that picture. They they saw them. There's this promise. They trusted God, even though they didn't have the full picture. You know, sometimes we can't see what God's doing. We can't see how God's promises are going to unfold. We can't we can't fathom how he's going to take a situation that we're in and bring it about for his glory. And yet we can trust him even though we don't have the full picture. Just like Abraham, we can anchor our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's so much more that we could say about Genesis, but just to speed up the story, Uh, Isaac gets married to Rebecca, they have two sons, Jacob and Esau, Genesis tells us some more fascinating things about them and their conflict, and you have Jacob, this this conniving one, this this guy who who is part of God's family, but constantly pushing the envelope, stubbornly trying to do things his own way, and yet God faithfully pursues him, and through his wives and their servants, again, just some more of God's people trying to take God's plans into their own hands and make things happen. He has a new num- a number of children, and, and the boys here are listed in Exodus chapter one, verses two through four. But the one that's not mentioned is the one that the book of Genesis finishes us with, his story. Joseph. Again, so many of us know the story of Joseph and his brothers just hated him. They sold him into slavery. And God used him to rescue his people by preserving a remnant there in Egypt. And the story ends with Jacob bringing kids and grandkids. The text tells us by now there's 70 altogether into Egypt. And God preserves and protects them ...through Joseph and through the Pharaoh. And now we find ourselves in Exodus... ...and 400 years has gone by. The story tells us that, that Pharaoh... ...who had been so favorable to, Egypt, to, to Joseph... ...that Pharaoh that was where that king in Egypt... ...that was living then... ...who had been so kind to, to Joseph... ...and his parents and siblings and their families... He had died, and a king rose up that did not know Joseph and his family. And They began to see how Israel was multiplying and put them into slavery, into bondage. The text tells us. And as these four hundred years have gone by, the people have they, they multiplied so much that the Egyptians, the Egyptians said, we're going to assign taskmasters over the Israelites and oppress them with forced labor. They built cities to contain the Jewish people, the Israelites. But it says the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And they worked the Israelites ruthlessly. And so what we see here, the place that Exodus brings, we're just thrown in the middle of this story. And it's such a beautiful piece of writing apart from being God's word for us, it's a beautiful piece of writing to just, it takes us into the plight of the Israelites. They had gone to this place for safety and refuge, and all of a sudden now, 400 years later, they and their families, they're slaves, and they're treated poorly, and they're beaten, and they're oppressed. There's this great verses at the end of chapter 2, and we're going we're to return and, and look at chapters 1 and 2 a little more closely next week. and We'll return to these verses in particular. In verse 23, it said, The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out. and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the Israelites, and God knew. I love those verses. And what we're going to see throughout the book of Exodus, and just by way of application, I just want to give you two thoughts, is that God is always at work behind the scenes. God is always at work. Whether we have any clue or not, whether we're tuned into it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, our God is always at work. What we didn't read was back in Genesis 46 3, God told Jacob to go to Egypt. The Israelites are not in Egypt because of disobedience. In Exodus, or in Genesis 46 3, he says, I am God. The God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. The temptation could be to read this story and think, well, the Israelites at some point did something wrong, and God is now punishing them for this. They're getting what they deserve by being slaves. There's a temptation to think that at some point they went wrong, and so now they're reaping their just desserts. But God actually told them told Jacob, you go there to Egypt and I will make you into a great nation. I'll take care of this. Should the notion ever cross the minds of the Israelites that their hardships indicated they had made a misstep and strayed from God's plan, this affirmation would alleviate their concerns. It served as a reassurance that such assumptions were unfounded. The truth was that everything was in order. God had deliberately guided them to the land of Egypt and he had been By their side throughout the whole journey. To be sure, this did not simplify matters. But it assured them that they were not in Egypt by accident. In fact, God told Abraham that the slavery would in fact happen. Back in Genesis 15, 13, when he was reiterating his promise to Abraham. He said, know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them. And they will be enslaved, enslaved, and oppressed. God was at work. Despite all of these awful circumstances, God had said, listen, I'm going to take you there. I'm going to allow you to go through great suffering, but I have not forgotten you. You see, my brothers and sisters, we walk through things all the time, and we have no clue what God is up to. I say we. Maybe I just should say I. I don't want to assume that you... That for you, but I think all of us—it's safe to say—have have experienced things, and we ask that "why" question, and we don't get a clear answer. We don't understand why God is permitting these things, and the temptation is—is is to turn inward and say, "Well, I must have done something. Maybe I've sinned. Maybe I haven't prayed enough. Maybe I haven't exercised enough faith. Maybe I, I, I." And all the while. It's God saying, I'm here, I'm directing this, I'm bringing this about for a very clear purpose. I just haven't told you what it is. And that's his prerogative. As hard as that is for me sometimes to believe, that's God's prerogative. He doesn't have to tell us. He doesn't owe that to us. It's easy to just forget that and slip into a mode where I think, you just, I, I need an answer before we're going any further. You need to explain things to me, God, before we're taking another step. That pride, that whatever. That we think God has to answer to us. I, I don't know. They can creep in, though. So God calls us to a spirit of humility. A spirit that says, okay, not my will, but yours be done. Okay, God, I don't understand you. I'm going to trust you. Even though I'm 100 years old, my wife's 90, I'm going to believe that you're going to provide a child just like you said. I don't understand how this is going to happen. I don't, believe, or I, I don't understand how you're going to work this out, but I'm going to choose to believe you and your word. Exodus reminds us that God gives us experiences without explanations. We're reminded that God will take care of his people. He will keep his promises. In that same passage where he told Abraham that he was going to allow them to be enslaved and oppressed, he says, "However, I will judge the nation they served, and afterward they will go out with many possessions." Hundreds of years before Israel was even in the land of Egypt, God told Abraham exactly how it was going to unfold. They're going to be slaves for 400 years. They're going to be miserable. I'm going to deliver them in such a powerful way that the Egyptians are just going to be throwing possessions at them as they leave. We're going to see as we walk throughout this book that God is a God who knows how to take care of his people, that he is a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who is always at work behind the scenes. But secondly, we're going to see that our God is a God who delivers his people from bondage. And this is the overarching theme of the book of Exodus right here. And we're going to see this all the way through. In Exodus, we learn about God's power to rescue his people who are enslaved by the Egyptians. But that's just a snapshot of a bigger story, a bigger narrative. That we have a God Who sends a redeemer to deliver us out of our bondage to sin. Think about it. From the very beginning of Exodus, the story reveals a prince who leaves a privileged position at a royal palace to deliver his people, to be with his people, to deliver his people from bondage. This prince is going to be the go-between between the people and the father. We're going to see that Jesus is all over the book of Exodus. In fact, it's just so important that we remember that we must read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. The fact that Jesus came to earth, died upon the cross, and has been raised from the dead and that we are raised with him to a new life ought to change the way that we read the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, one writer said a Christian should interpret the Old Testament from the point of view that Christ is the final word in the story of redemption. That final word is displayed for all the world to see in the cross the empty tomb, and the existence of the church by God's Spirit. You see, what happened in God delivering His people from bondage in Egypt is the most significant redemptive event in the Old Testament. Exodus then creates a paradigm or a picture of the redemptive work of God. You see, because of the fall, you and I are born in sin, born in bondage, enslaved to sin. This slavery is far worse than what those Israelites experienced under the heavy hand of the Egyptians. But the picture is still the same. Same. Those Israelites could do nothing to deliver themselves. They couldn't get themselves out of their predicament. Their rescue, their deliverance could only come from another. In the same way Jesus sets us free from our slavery to sin. As the story goes on, we're going to see so many parallels. We'll see Jesus being our Passover lamb whose sacrifice rescues us from judgment and death. We'll see that he, he's God's presence on earth, God tabernacling amongst us and so many more. Exodus graphically reveals the means of our salvation, redemption through sacrifice, and the content of our salvation, enjoying God's presence in a world that's made new. Exodus is an exciting story, it's a historical story, it's a story that shows us just how far God will go to redeem his people, and as it points us to and inspires us to worship Christ, it's our story. I'm excited that you've joined us on this journey as we see our story in the book of Exodus As we see a God who goes to such great lengths to deliver his people and to bring them near to himself, my prayer is that we will see our story in that grand story of redemption, a God that loved us so much that he came to live with us and to redeem us, to set us free and to bring us to himself. The reason that we can be a part of the story is because of Jesus' finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's table this morning as as a reminder of that invitation into the story, the deliverance that we experience through Jesus. My prayer is that you have personally experienced that deliverance through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you have, If you know what it means to be set free from bondage and to be brought into the promised land, we want to invite you to celebrate the Lord's table with us. Just a moment, we're going to spend a little time in prayer, a chance for you to reflect and to to thank Jesus for his work for you, a chance to turn your heart towards the only one who could bring us out of bondage and slavery. After we've had a, a moment to do that, our, our worship team is going to lead us in a final song. And we just want to invite you to, to come on up and celebrate communion. And I just always like to remember, if, if you happen to be new here or if you've, if you've, if you've not experienced uh, or had an opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table here at Brown Corners, uh, just, just pick a table. we got one on each side here. You can hop in a line, and sometimes it's a little chaotic, and there's little traffic jams. But um, you'll get there. And, and there's uh, some bread. There's juice. And if, if you come over to this table, there's some some gluten free wafers. If that will be of help to you, um, I also want to mention that, that you don't have to be a member here. You don't. If this is your first Sunday here, or you, as long as you're a believer, we want to invite you to the to the table and, and join us in worshiping God and and rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus Christ together. I also mentioned that there's um, you'll see some offering plates sitting there and. Um, Again, those of you who've been here know that our our normal offering is uh, boxes around the back wall, but this is an opportunity, if you give here, this this is above and beyond, to go towards those in our church family who might be in need in some way, for a chance for us to bless and to help them. It's all because of Jesus that we've been set free. And so let's just take a moment, and right where you are in the quiet of your seat, I just want to encourage you to bow and thank him. that freedom and the privilege to enter in to his finished work I'm so thankful for the story of the exodus and seeing how you're a God who works behind the scenes even when it seems like there's nothing happening on the surface. You're a God who is sovereignly at work. Father, I pray that my brothers and sisters today would, we would all take that to heart. If We find ourselves in a scenario in life that just not sure what you're doing, I, I pray that our trust in you would be bolstered. We will double down on, on just anchoring our hope in you while we while we wait for you to act. Heavenly Father, I, I, I thank you for the, the picture of the gospel that we're going to see all the way throughout this book, that you're a God who who sees that your people need rescuing. And you know and you care. And you've cared so much because of your great and abundant and mysterious love. You didn't just send some mediocre solution, you sent the very best heaven had to offer. You sent your only son to bring redemption. remove the shackles, to deliver us from bondage. What a beautiful picture and reminder of your loving and faithful pursuit and the lengths that you'll go to rescue us. Along with John, I say, behold what manner of love is this. I think that you would love us so very much that you would give Jesus, the Son of God, to make our rescue certain. As we come to your table today, I, I pray that you would overwhelm us with, with joy and hope, and with your love, as we reflect on beauty of your gift thank you God for the cross thank you for the resurrection draw our hearts together in love and it's in Jesus name we pray amen please come and join us
1: And oh, precious is the love that makes me white as snow. No, no other found I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Righteousness, nothing, nothing but the No.
0: Finishing up, let's pull up verse four. Let's sing this all together on our way out. This is all. This
1: is all. voice is so precious come on Peace himself make you holy through and through. May your whole being, spirit and soul and
0: body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will accomplish it. Amen? Amen. Bless you.